Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Rafael Nadal is back playing tennis. The 2024 season is back. And this is the first Monday Match Analysis of the year. The show is going to be basically two parts. Part one, Nadal team. My takeaways. What did we learn from watching this match? How did Rafa look? Maybe a little bit of team stuff, but mostly Nadal stuff. And then the second part is going to be, I don't know a better way to put this, a total mishmash of topics, uh, quick hitters, observations that I've had in the last week or so, watching the first you know six, seven days of the season. Apologies for the late release. It's been really hard for me to find any time to do the show, uh, just with commentating on the Australian time zone and such. And the other funny thing about that is uh, in all my years doing YouTube, I've had my software completely crash and lose a recording file twice. And this was one of these times. So this is the second time I'm running through all of this stuff, which in theory should make me almost like do it better. But I think I might be so tired that it might cancel it out. So we'll see how I do. Nadal team. Let's do it. Obviously, there's an emotional aspect to this all of it. And you kind of got to start there. Feels almost inappropriate to not. So great to see Rafa back. Really happy for him. Happy for Rafa fans. Happy for tennis. That's it. It's crazy that he drew team of all people to play this match. Someone with uh, that level of name recognition. Someone who has played Nadal in Roland Garros finals. Um, but this was a good draw on paper for Rafa. I thought Nadal was going to win. I didn't think it was going to be a high-level match. It's Nadal's first match back in about a year. And team just played a guy outside the top 200 in the first round of qualifying, almost lost. Then he played a guy outside the top 125 in the second round of qualifying, almost lost again. Had to come back in both of those matches, one of both 6-4 in the third. So essentially, I thought Nadal might play a modest top 50-ish level, win the match, and I was going to say, hey, great to see him back. We didn't really learn where he's at. Team has, you know, is working through some issues right now, and that's kind of that. Surprise, surprise, team played great. He played really, really well for a set. And Rafa stayed with him. And the level 
that we saw from both of them was really, really pleasantly surprising. Team definitely dipped, and as soon as he dipped, Rafa didn't go down with him. Rafa maintained. Nadal started crushing him, right? I, I'm not going to say, okay, what level was that first set? Like, was team playing a top 20 level? Was that the measuring stick or this? All I'll say is this. If Nadal wasn't razor sharp right at the start of the match, he would have gone down in the match, right? In order to stick with team playing at the level Dominic was playing, Rafa had to be on it. And he had to execute at a very high level. And he did. So, look, Nadal played great. And I'm not going to talk it down like I thought maybe I was going to. There's no reason to talk it down. Uh, he checked so many boxes in this performance. So let's run through them. First serve rhythm was great. He made 67% of his first serves. His second serve was bigger than I remember seeing it when... He left the door. Um, bigger than I remember seeing it in 2021, 2022. He was jamming team in the body almost every time. You need good second serve speed to accomplish that. If you're not hitting your second serve fast enough, those are those fraction seconds needed to get out of the way, run around, and, and hit a stronger second serve return. Team was getting jammed like every time. That was a big deal. Nadal's forehand was a death trap, and it wasn't missing. We did get some numbers here from Tennis Insights. Nadal made 59 out of his 63 forehands for the match. That's 94% in. His winner rate was 11%. One in every 10 forehands he hit was a winner. Insanely good stuff from the Nadal forehand. Now, if you've been listening to me, you know, in my coverage before the season, you know, kind of assumed that would be the case. Ability was never in question. He's not going to turn 37, forget how to hit a forehand. He's not going to have, you know, arthroscopic surgery on his hip abductor, forget how to hit a forehand, right? It's not going to quite work like that. But was it necessarily going to be there right away from a confidence standpoint? I mean, maybe not. That wasn't a given, right? I mean, we've seen that throughout Nadal's career. The ability, the confidence needed, the confidence needed to flatten out the forehand is not always there. Right away, he had it. Right away. There was one that I remember. Nadal hit a forehand that landed like three feet to team's right, it felt like. The team was in position, middle of the court. Nadal was loading up a forehand, also middle of the court, and he hit it slightly inside out. Not a lot of width. It was so fast. It had so much depth. It ripped through the air so quickly. It was a clean winner, and it was like three feet to team's right. That's how big Nadal hit it. It was the kind of forehand I rarely, rarely see him hit in matches, and I see it in practice footage all the time when he's completely loose. So there was confidence and there was a sense of freedom in Nadal's forehand. It was big and bad. Backhand was very aggressive and very effective as well. 
Team got no relief by going into Dahl's backhand if he didn't go there with quality. In fact, quick tactical aside, Team's ad side return strategy was disastrous because of how well Nadal was hitting his backhand. Team on the ad side, where Nadal is going to serve wide to Dami's one-hander all the time, right? Team was going down the line with his backhand return. What are you really accomplishing by going to Nadal's backhand there to go down the line? All you're doing is you're avoiding his forehand. But here are the drawbacks that were hurting Team. Well, there's less time to recover to the middle. And you're opening up potential for width into the part of the court that you're unable to recover into. So, team backhand down the line return. Nadal backhand cross court in that kind of V attack pattern. That was killing team. Big picture, offensively. I don't know how Rafa could have been more dominant than that. I don't know how anybody can be more dominant offensively than that other than hit a bunch of aces because watching the match, if there is one thing that was abundantly clear, it's this. Nadal was basically winning every point when he got ahead and got on offense. And part of that might be team not flipping around points as well as he used to. But most of that, I think, is Nadal just playing amazing offensive tennis Choosing great targets, delivering big power, and keeping it clean. So everything I just said, it's all great. But I intentionally buried the lead also. I haven't said the thing that matters most to me. The thing that I saw in this match that I think had the biggest effect or the, left the biggest impression on me. And had, you know, really kind of got me to my takeaway from the match. Everything I talked about is offense, serve, forehand, backhand, talked about how we use the backhand and the plus one, talked about how the second serves tended to jam team. Uh, it's all offense. It was the defensive moments in this match that to me were eye-opening. And I was reminded of a couple of things that I remember I was thinking about when Nadal had his great uh, 2022 and he... Uh, first half of 2022, won the Australian Open, won Roland Garros. And uh, at the time, I was thinking, look, Nadal is not the most explosive mover anymore. But his defense is still elite. Amazing how that works. Because his positioning matters. His anticipation matters. And his defensive racket skills come to the forefront, and they matter. I was certainly reminded in this match how incredible Nadal's defensive racket skills are. And what does that mean? It means when he gets to the ball, when he's there, when he gets a racket on it, it comes back, and so often it's either deep or it's low or at the very least, maybe it's neither of those things, but it gets to the backhand, which was a big deal against Team in this match because there were a, a there were some really big moments where Team just couldn't attack short balls well on his backhand. Really hurt him at five six deuce right before he ultimately got broken for the set, where he hit a bad backhand approach shot. Also hurt him uh, early on in the second set, uh, which which led to a break where he got passed off of a backhand approach shot that wasn't good enough. 
Uh, anyway, Nadal's slice defense was particularly good in this match. But ultimately, also, the movement has to be there. And there were some displays of sideline-to-sideline -side defense. And those were the moments that spoke to me in this match. 1-2, uh, 40-15, 4-all, 15-all, even the set point, 5-6 add-out, where he stretches out and makes a really great return, kind of what I'm talking about with the defensive racket skills. They apply on the return, too, where he is having to kind of block the ball and still achieves great depth on a desperation return of serve, right? But he's pulled out wide on his forehand in his forehand corner. Then he has to get all the way to the other sideline to hit a chip defensive backhand, which, granted, isn't so deep in the court, but he gets the forehand miss, unforced error from team on the next ball. Well, he still had to go sideline to sideline there to make the extra shot and get the miss from team. Those were the moments that spoke to me. Because at the end of the day, it comes as zero surprise to me that Nadal's racket skills hold up. And maybe, sure, it's somewhat surprising that the sharpness and the confidence was there right away. But those were always going to get there at some point if they weren't going to be there right away. The question was, and you guys know I had this question if you've been listening to me the last year. The question is, how is this 37-year-old who just had the hip surgery, going to move? How is the 37-year-old who had the hip surgery going to move? He moved pretty well. He moved pretty well. I think he moved well enough to get me to the point where I'm pretty confident giving you this takeaway. Pretty confident in what I'm about to say. Um, and I'm, I'm a cautious guy. Right, one match, one, 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 one match. Not going to jump to any major conclusions from one match. I never do that. I'm a cautious guy, but I am willing to say this. I'm no longer at all concerned after watching that that 2024 is going to be some kind of Ghost of Nadal farewell tour. You know what I mean by Ghost of Nadal farewell tour? That means, look, I can't really compete at the highest level anymore. Um, I'm going to struggle to win matches. But I just want to go out on my own terms. And I don't want to end my career in a press conference. So I'm going to come out here. I'm not really going to be a recognizable version of Rafael Nadal for the most part. But I'm just going to kind of play and have my little victory lap. Farewell tour. But I'm a ghost to myself. Uh, I'm not concerned about that. That's not going to happen. I've seen enough. I saw enough in one match where I can say that that's not going to happen. And if he stays healthy, he's going to win a lot of matches. Uh, remember when I picked him to finish 10th in my top 10 prediction, although he was the toughest guy to predict by far. I did it on the assumption that there would be a tangible decline in movement. I'm not so sure I even saw that compared to where he left off in 2022. That's all I got. Uh, I want to talk about the United Cup format. 
knowing full well that this could be like one of those fever dream things, United Cup, because, you know, there's rumors that Saudi Arabia wants a Masters 1000 before the Australian Open. And if that happens, that could completely jack up United Cup. And it might be one of those things where we're like, remember the two years thing? They were playing mixed doubles all the time and United Cup. That was crazy. It could turn into something like that. But for now, it's not. So let's treat it like it's something that's going to stick around for the future. Talk a little bit about the format tweaks that they made this year. The biggest thing was they went from they went from five matches in a tie over the course of two days to three matches in a tie, finish it up in one session, one day. First of all, in general, doing something in one sitting is in the content industry is almost always better than doing things in, in two, uh, whenever you can. I mean, unless duration is going to be an obstacle, um, and then, then you split it up. I, we all get that. Um, look, it's awesome though, that you can have a kind of a start to finish deal in, in one day. I love that. Um, the other thing is, it's a leaner event now. They trimmed some of the fat, and I think overall it's less watered down. The product is more consistent. The product is a little better on a more consistent basis. Look, last year, you have the issue with the qualification. You want stars in your event, right? You want top players in your event. You're going to have some top players and they come from countries that don't offer depth. So you just had matches with all due respect to all those players. And I enjoyed some of these matches because it was great opportunities for these guys. But with all due respect, you had players who did not meet the bar that is generally set for this is a tour event in a big stadium, 10,000 seat arenas, uh, 500 rankings points, maximum of 500 rankings points. Um, you know, and, and then some, some of these matchups were just lopsided. And then some of them were, were matches that just didn't move the needle to the extent that I think United Cup needs to move the needle. So uh, that's not as much of an issue this year. And what have we gotten? We've gotten this format with... One men's singles, one women's singles, mixed doubles. And based on the construction of most of these rosters, a lot of the time, um, even these countries that don't have depth are, are able to compete pretty well because if their star wins, yeah, maybe the other person doesn't win. Now it's mixed doubles. A mixed doubles match with no ad scoring and a 10-point tiebreak in the third in the th in in place of a third set that can go either way i don't care that can go that can go either way that's somewhat of a toss up and i i don't know if this year is a little bit unusual or if it's just the construction of the rosters or or what but if one thing is clear it's that most of these matchups have gone to deciding doubles I counted last night, it was, at the time, last night, it was 14 out of 16. 14 out of the 16 ties uh, 
were decided by the mixed doubles. That's fun. Like, I like mixed doubles a lot. I think visually it it has an appeal um, and and a fun factor and an interest factor and a, a refreshingness to it. All of those things. I like it. I also like when ties are close and competitive as opposed to them being blowouts. That's cool. That's dramatic. That's fun. So all of those things are positives. I'll also just say, though, the whole competition, it does feel a little bit fluky when it comes to the results, when it comes to who wins. You can't read too much into the results. And that does take away, I think, a little bit from the prestige and the pride factor of winning the event. So that's kind of where I stand on it. Um, entertaining? Absolutely. Does it make the results feel like they matter? No. It makes them feel random and fluky. Okay. Uh, next thing I would like to get to is, let's see, uh, let's do the Eugenie interview. Uh, Mikhail Yuzhny gave an interview to tennis majors. I found it very interesting. And uh, I want to talk about it, especially because it's a follow-up on some coverage that I've had of a player who I haven't talked about that much in the last year. That's Denis Shapovalov, all right? Um, Yuzhny used to coach Shapovalov. It was a really successful relationship in the beginning. I mean, Yuzhny did wonders uh, for Shapo, both, you know, how to manage the one-handed backhand, uh, shot selection. Things were looking up with Mikhail Yuzhny. And then Wimbledon semifinal happened, big downturn, and then they split up at the end of that year. Um, in this interview, Yuzhny talks a little bit about how things went down from his perspective. He says, quote, after the Wimbledon semifinals, we disagreed on some scheduling decisions. I thought we should stick with the plan we agreed on. I started to feel that we lost the connection a little bit. So we ended our collaboration at the end of that year. The split was a mutual decision, but if I have to sum up the reasons, they came down to tournament choices and practice choices. I started to feel more like a sparring partner than a coach. So that line in the end, feeling more like a sparring partner than a coach, to me that just means... Usually felt like his actual coaching advice, it wasn't landing, it wasn't coming through, it wasn't being implemented. And if those things aren't happening, well, you've been reduced to more of a traveling hitting partner than a coach um, that has, you know, real influence and uh, you know, power over what your player is doing and how they're going about things. All right. Uh, now, Shapo tried to rehire Yuzhny. A little bit later in the interview, Mikhail explains why he didn't rejoin Team Shapo, um, even though Shapo wanted him to come back to the team. Uh, don't ignore the top paragraph. Quote, we spoke a lot in New York. Um, then we had numerous phone conversations afterwards, but my feeling was that nothing changed. I felt like I can't bring him the change he needed. He is listening, but he is not fully doing what he needs to do in order to be a top player. 
two or three years ago, he was one of the guys who could consistently be in the top 10. But for that to happen, he needed to change a few things outside of tennis. He must be healthy 100% first and foremost and physically better. Uh, main thing, he has to try to put tennis as his priority. It is, it is his priority for most of the time, but in my opinion, he made some wrong decisions where he didn't make tennis as the priority. Those are pretty explosive words from tennis standards where nobody talks about each other because nobody wants to upset anybody and you know you end up speaking in a lot of cliches and really not opening up to the media the way Mikhail Yuzhny is. Obviously, Chapo, he was not happy about this. Uh, he, he tweeted. He had a little bit of a tweet rebuttal. Um, I will read it here. Uh, he said, Awful how someone can go out of their way to say I'm not giving everything for my tennis when I've dedicated my whole life to it from the age of five, not to mention being injured since Wimbledon, rehabbing and doing everything I can every single day just to get back on court. I understand why Chapo's upset. He should be, right? A prideful person should be when somebody says, you're not doing everything you can. Uh, you could be more dedicated. Uh, you know, you should take that uh, to heart. That said, it's not the most convincing argument. I mean, look, everybody on tour has more or less dedicated their life to tennis from the age of five. That doesn't mean everybody on tour is on the same level of hard work, sacrifice, dedication, discipline, professionalism. And, you know, I just think, first of all, why would Eugenie lie about this? any of this, right? I mean, I don't think there's any contentiousness off the court. I don't think there's any vendetta. I don't think there's a bad personal relationship outside of their professional disagreements. Why would Yuzhny lie about any of this? He's obviously just giving his opinion. Second, he's not saying Chapo doesn't work hard. Pretty much everybody on tour, they put in some hard work, right? In, in some capacity. All Yuzhny's saying is that he could do a little bit more and he isn't willing to make certain sacrifices and there's some off-court stuff that has maybe gotten in the way. And to Yuzhny's credit, it's none of our business what that is. I just thought this was interesting. Next thing, uh, getting back to on-court stuff, um, I want to say a quick word about Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. I watched uh, every point of his match against... Uh, Tiago Zaybachvils, which was the first match of 2024, first match. And I was like, wow, that was clean. And boy, that was really the style that I want to see him play over and over again. I didn't see his match with Hercotch, but he won. And uh, he's been really good in that Hercotch head-to-head. Leads it 4-2, even though he's always been the lower-ranked player. Always. Um... But I've seen Hercotch play. I saw Hercotch play uh, Zheng Zhizhen today. I think Hercotch's game, at least in that match, looked really good, which means I put even more stock in the Davidovich Fakina win. Um, look, I'm just wondering is he ready to be a little more patient and solid? Because I know you guys have heard this a million times from me, and you heard this when he was even lower in the rankings, but I still feel like he's not ranked high enough. And I still think that if he just adopts a style where he's going to be leaning on his court coverage and his quickness as his main asset, as his main weapon, 
That's what I want him to do. Use your legs as your main weapon. Uh, I think I think he's going to rise. And yeah, there's going to be a cap because he's not a server and he's never going to be a server. But this is a really good start for Davidovich Fakina. And I'm on ADF watch again. I'll leave it at that. Another guy who's looked really good, Roman Safulin, uh beat Shelton. And I was watching that match against Shelton. My take is... I think he's got a more sustainable thing going on than Karatsev. Bad timing for this analysis because Karatsev hurt his knee today. And uh, hoping for the best, praying for the best for, for Karatsev that it's not serious. But um, I was planning on talking about this before Karatsev got hurt, so I just got to go for it. Um, I think Safulin, the similarities are this. Really oppressive... Really oppressive style in how much time he takes away, how he hugs the baseline and plays on the rise and threatens off of both wings somewhat equally, somewhat. And uh, clean, really, really, really clean ball striker, hits to precise targets. Uh, not like this exceptionally powerful or heavy hitter, but because he's taking the ball so early um, and being so relentless with his intention— it's a, it's a pretty good package offensively. I think the difference, the reason why I think um, he's going to be more consistent and ultimately be in the top 30 slash 20 longer than Karatsev, I think the forehand's more reliable. It just looks like less goes wrong with the technique where Karatsev, if the timing is slightly off, that forehand goes haywire. Uh, you know, Safulin's racket head just stays through the hitting zone much longer, and I like his forehand more. And the net game, like if you're going to hug the baseline to that extent, uh, you're putting yourself positionally in a pretty good spot to get forward. And uh, Safulin takes advantage of that. Uh, he's got quite a net game on him. So really high on Safulin. Um, good start for him. I think he also won his match day in like a third set tiebreak against Alexi Popperin. Shelton missed way too many returns in that match, by the way. There were some good things from Ben. He's reworked his forehand a bit, um, and I like what he's done a lot with uh, with his forehand. But, God, he made, like, no returns in that match. I want to talk about some injury stuff now. First, Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas, lower back. The thing that knocked him out of the ATP finals in Turin. Yeah, still a thing. Still a thing. Now, we played today in singles for the first time against Steven Diaz. Sure, that's good. But the other day, he pulled out of the singles, uh, didn't play Nicholas Jari when Greece was going up against Chile. And then he played the mixed doubles. Super tiebreak in the mixed doubles. He had this sequence of terrible second serves. One, he hit super soft really, really soft, and it got crushed. Then he double faulted, and afterwards, he clutched his back and doubled over, and it's like, oh boy, that's not what you want to see. Uh, and then I was doing some background research. He gave an interview on December 27th, and he said that his back is almost healed. He said almost healed. Well, that's not very good. And let me explain why it's not very good. Tsitsipas might not have any withdrawals or retirements 
for the next three months and nobody's going to talk about his back. That might happen. Doesn't mean that I still won't be thinking about this and keeping this in my mind. It's exactly what we saw in 2022 when he had the elbow surgery in the offseason. Because the offseason, even if you don't miss any of the season, if you're injured during the offseason, that matters. The offseason is when you have the ability to work on improvements that are maybe a little bit more uncomfortable, more experimental, take more time to hone in. That's when you do these things. What kind of offseason did Pass have if he wasn't ready to go just a couple of days ago and if on January 27th he was saying that his back almost healed? Not great. Not what you want to see. Uh, this next thing is a little bit different. It has to do with um, some reading that I did, actually. Um, it's just a follow-up on my coverage of Sebastian Corda. Because you guys know that if you've uh, if you've heard me over the last like year or so, I've talked about how unreliable at times Corda's forehand has been, how he's lost a lot of matches because he hasn't been able to control his forehand. And I, I just have never quite understood why that happens because sometimes it looks really good and the technique looks pretty darn solid. I stumbled upon some quotes from Shanghai where he was kind of explaining a couple things. One, that the pain in his wrist, um, his right wrist, has been long-standing. So, you know, famously... He retired against his in his Australian Open match, his quarterfinal match against Karen Hatchinov last year. And then he he spent three months rehabbing, recovering, healing the right wrist. That's very well known. What I didn't know until reading this is the wrist pain went back longer, you know, before before even last year. And <clears throat> it had come back from time to time throughout last year as well, hadn't completely gone away or become a non-issue. And Corda went on to explain that he was lacking reps on the forehand last year, that he just hadn't hit enough because of the right wrist issues, whether that be forehand volleys, forehand returns, regular forehands. He felt like he was lacking reps. That gives me a lot of answers. Uh, essentially, maybe Corda's wrist issue is bigger than we realize, and that has been the root cause of all the forehand issues. A couple of uh, other quick things. Uh, Rude, notice the pickup in, in his results. Notice the start that he's had here on Hardcourt. Straight set win 6-3, 6-4 over Talon Griegspor. Straight set win 6-4, 6-1 over Borna Chorich. Look, I get that that's not like the most amazing thing in the world for a guy who made the U.S. Open final and has been two in the world. But uh, let me put it to you this way. Last year, it took Kasparud until September to win back-to-back -back matches on hardcourt. This year, he did it on January 1st. ATP website. They updated it. It's really bad. Uh, I'm not going to bore you guys and go on and on about this, but uh, 
I just want to throw that out there as that has also been part of my experience of this first week of 2024, trying to navigate this, this website and uh, figure things out. It, it's way harder to find information. It's way harder to get information. Uh, really um, somewhat disappointing, but I'm confident and faithful that uh, the feedback they're getting will all be of that nature and that it will be remedied, reversed fixed. Um, and other than that, I cannot complain. Other than that, my first week of 2024 season is going great. I hope yours is going great too. Happy new year, everybody. I appreciate you all more than you know. I hope that you have the happiest and healthiest, uh, 2024 possible. I hope your favorite players do amazing things. I hope you do amazing things on the court for those of you who play and, uh, all that good stuff. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.